One of the promises of my new book, Muscle for Life, which is available for pre-order right now at muscleforlifebook.com, is it can produce an outstanding level of fitness in all and sundry in just a few hours per week. And that's why it has three workout routines for both men and women, so that's six in total, that readers can choose from. There are beginner routines, intermediate routines, and advanced routines. So the beginner routines, what they do is they introduce you to proper strength training. They teach you the fundamentals of good technique, and they greatly enhance your strength balance and coordination. And then on the intermediate routines, they increase the difficulty of your workouts by incorporating more challenging exercises, including more dumbbell exercises, which allow you to more effectively challenge your muscles. And then the advanced routines, they they are the most difficult in the Muscle for Life program, and they introduce you to barbell exercises because those offer the biggest bang for your buck in terms of strength and muscle gain. Now, which of these routines would be best for you? Well, if you are new to strength training or if you haven't done it consistently in a while, I would say in at least a year, then the beginner routine or a beginner routine is going to be best for you because that is going to be demanding, but also approachable. Now, if you dabble in strength training and you meet the following strength standards, then an intermediate routine is going to be right for you. So if you're a guy and you can do at least one set of 15 feet elevated pushups, one set of at least 15 bodyweight rows, and one set of at least 15 bodyweight squats, then intermediate might be a, a, the right place to start. You'll have to keep listening for the advanced strength standards. And if you are a woman and you can do at least one set of 10 push-ups, one set of 10 bodyweight rows, and one set of 15 bodyweight squats, then you would qualify for the intermediate routine. Now, if you are an experienced weightlifter and you meet or exceed the following strength standards, then an advanced routine would be the best place to start for you. If you can dumbbell bench press at least 25% of your body weight for at least one set of five reps, if you can trap bar deadlift at least 75% of your body weight for at least one set of five reps, and if you can dumbbell goblet squat at least 25% of your body weight for at least one set of five reps, then you are strong enough to start on an advanced routine. So basically, whether you are a middle ager or even a golden ager who has never lifted a weight in your life, or maybe you are a dedicated weekend warrior looking to level up in your fitness game, Muscle for Life has something for you. And again, it is available for pre-order right now at muscleforlifebook.com, muscleforlifebook.com. And if you go pre-order a copy now you will be entered to win over $12,000 of awesome fitness swag that I'm giving away. And you can find all of the details of the giveaway over at muscleforlifebook.com. Hello, hello. This is Muscle for Life. I'm Mike Matthews. Thank you for joining me today. If you haven't already, please do take a moment and subscribe to the show in whatever app you are listening to me in so you don't miss any new episodes. And it helps me by boosting the ranking of the show in the various charts. Now, this episode uh, is about comfortable versus uncomfortable. Are we moderns too comfortable? Do we complain too much? Do we avoid discomfort too strenuously? 
I think most of us would agree that modern life is filled with many modern conveniences and it is engineered in so many ways to make life as easy as possible, to require as little effort as possible, to be as enjoyable as possible. And that sounds nice, but what if these contemporary comforts uh, masquerading as a panacea of pleasure are actually causing problems? What if this is a double-edged sword? What if we are losing something very important in our nature through this process of becoming more and more comfortable? Is there value in eschewing comfort? Is there value in choosing discomfort, at least a certain amount of discomfort? And that is the topic of today's podcast. This is an interview with Michael Easter, who wrote a book called The Comfort Crisis, all about these kinds of questions. And in this interview, he's going to explain how he embraced discomfort uh, in, a, in a rather extreme way and some of the insights that he gained from that process and his thoughts as to why we should work to inject more challenge into our lives and not allow ourselves to get too comfortable. And in case you're not familiar with Michael, he is not only an author, but he is also a contributing editor to Men's Health. He is a columnist for Outside Magazine. He is a professor at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And you can find his work in many big publications, Men's Journal, Vice, Scientific American, Esquire, and more. Hey, Mike, it's nice to uh, meet you. And thanks for some of your time this afternoon. Yeah, likewise. Glad to be on. This should be fun. Yeah, I think who made this intro? Was it David? Oh, I don't know, man. Uh, don't somebody know. did. Well, thank you question. to whoever made this uh, intro because uh, it, I, I've been looking forward to this discussion because it's something different than than the stuff I normally talk about, but something I think um, very relevant. And I'm, and I'm curious to to hear some of your thoughts about what's going on. So, so you have this book. I think it's, that's the easiest place to start, which is really the theme, I guess, of yeah. the of the discussion is going to be the book, right? And it's the it's the comfort crisis. And what do you mean by that? So the, the basic premise of the book is that as the world has become more comfortable over time in a lot of ways, I mean, just think of everything that influences your daily life, right? We live in climate control, food is easy to access. We've engineered movement out of our days. Um, we don't really have that many challenges, I would say, outside anymore, out in nature like we did in the past, like all these different ways that the world has become more comfortable. That's all great that that's happened, but it's also taken away a lot of the things that um, make us healthy, right? So if you want to get dorky about it, um, the uh, an anthropologist would call this an evolution, evolutionary mismatch, where environments, we, we evolved in these environments of discomfort. And so we developed this drive to always want to do the next most comfortable thing, right? Don't move if you don't have to. If you have access to food, overeat it, right? Uh, stay in shelter, all these type of things. Um, but now that our world has become comfortable in all these different ways, that kind of backfires and is associated with a lot of the problems that we have. And so uh, is, is that now, what are, what are some of the, let's say, knock-on effects that you uh, have observed and obviously talk about in the book? How, how is this harming us individually, collectively? Yeah, so I, I identify a handful of discomforts that we used to face 
all the time in the past that we've kind of engineered out of our lives. And um, all of them kind of have their own effects. But I mean, just to take a few. So hunger, right? In the past, there was not a lot of food. People were hungry all the time. We had to work for that food, right? But nowadays, when you look at the research, like 80% of eating is driven by reasons than other than physiological hunger. Like people eat because it's a certain time. Uh, people eat because they're stressed, because they're bored, et cetera, right? And so this is tied to our astronomical rates of uh, obesity and the diseases that it can lead to. Um, people take an average of like 4,000 steps a day because through all of time, it didn't make sense to move any more than you needed to. But life used to throw effort at us. Like to live was to put an in effort into life, but now we don't have to do that anymore. So again, that ties back to our crazy rates of heart disease, um, certain cancers, diabetes, et cetera. Uh, but even mental health problems, uh, I argue, are often a consequence of um, how we're living nowadays, our lifestyles. So for example, we've engineered um, sort of physical challenges out of our lives. So for example, people don't take on rites of passage anymore, right? Um, and that's associated with a lot of um, mental health problems like anxiety um, and depression. And we know this from um, when in the 90s, a lot of uh, helicopter parenting started. So parents stopped, started taking challenge out of their kid's life. Those generations born after that um, have off the charts uh, rates of mental health problems. Uh, but even things like we don't go outside into nature anymore because nature is uncomfortable. It's unpredictable. We spend 95% of our time indoors. And we also know that nature, although it's uncomfortable, it is good for us, uh, good for our good for our brains in a lot of ways. Improves our productivity, our focus, decreases stress, decreases depression, improves happy. I mean, nature is like organic Xanax, more or less. And we rarely go out into it anymore. Um, and on and on. I mean, I, I identify a lot of different ones, but those are some sort of top-level ones. So then... The message is if if we made things a little bit harder for ourselves, we'd be a little bit happier. Yeah. Well, I think that the look, here's the deal. It's like we're wired to not want to be uncomfortable, right? Because if you were uncomfortable in the past, that was that was indicating you might actually be in some trouble here. Right. <clears throat> but nowadays it's it's not. But the stuff today that positively improves your life invariably always comes with a dose of discomfort. If you want to improve your fitness, you're going to have to train. You're going to have to train harder. Well, exercise sucks, right? <laughs> like it's hard. Uh, if you want to lose weight, you're going to be hungry. If you want to even improve your mental health, you're probably going to have to unpeel some onions and go to some places you don't want to do and ask yourself some hard questions about why do I feel this way, right? And make some changes that are inevitably going to be uncomfortable. But once you get over once you get through the discomfort, the sort of adaptation period, you come out on the other side of that improved and healthier, um, physically, psychologically, spiritually, emotionally, all that kind of stuff. What are some of your preferred ways to introduce, let's say, productive discomfort? I mean, exercise is obvious and a lot yeah. of people listening, uh, they're probably doing that and they, they understand firsthand that, yep, it, it, it always, it, it never gets easier. You just get better. I mean, it, it's true though. It's certainly in the case of fitness, right? Yeah. And totally. a lot of people listening, I'm sure they've dieted and, uh, no matter how optimized your diet is, you're going to be hungry from time to time. You shouldn't be starving. That shouldn't be the um, overwhelming uh, 
experience of of dieting it shouldn't just be yeah i was basically just hungry all the time but yeah, yeah you're, you're going to be hungry and you have to be comfortable and you have to understand that doesn't mean that you need to rush and go eat and sometimes you, you do as you mentioned it's more of a psychological or it's an emotional thing and so like if if you were to ask yourself let's say you go oh I, I really i really could uh, eat this really highly palatable food right now i'm hungry or i really want that well if you ask yourself all right, would I eat uh, if I if I just had some some beans that were cooked? Would I eat those right now? If that's a no, like man, that that's not physiological hunger, right? Yeah, exactly. physiological that's hunger. A... You're eating the beans, and you're gonna like the beans, actually. Um, yeah, so, exactly. So, so those are a couple things, listeners. They're already thinking with that stuff. But what are some yeah. other productive discomforts? Okay, here's one. So the through line of the book is that I spent. Um, more than a month up in the Arctic. Okay. And so the reason for that is because I was sort of reintroducing myself to all these forms of discomforts that our ancestors would have used to face in the past all the time. Right. Um, <clears throat> so one of the things that I faced up there was I didn't bring my cell phone because there wasn't a bar within a hundred miles. Right. I didn't bring a computer. I didn't bring a TV. I didn't bring a book. I didn't bring a magazine. I didn't, whatever. So all of a sudden I found myself in an interesting position and that's that I'm bored again, right? Like when is the last time you've had sustained boredom for a long time? Probably not too often. And that's because the average person now spends more than 12 hours a day engaging with digital media. So that's from cell phones, that's from TVs, that's from computers, that's from podcasts, that's from on and on and on, right? And boredom is uncomfortable. There's a reason that we avoid it, but it actually can be a good thing. So if you want to think about why humans evolved to be bored in the first place, um, <clears throat> I basically described it as this, is that boredom would kick in anytime that the whatever we were doing, the return on our time invested had worn thin. So let's say that we are, you know, it's 10,000 years ago, you and I are sitting on a hill, we're trying to hunt um, a deer or whatever, right? So we're waiting for deer to come through. Nothing's coming through, but we need food, right? There's no 7-Elevens. There's no marketplaces where we can go get food. So boredom would kick in and basically be like, this is a waste of you guys' time. You need to do something else if you want to survive. It's this discomfort. It's the use of discomfort to incite change, right? So we would go do whatever, pick berries, dig up some potatoes, whatever, right? Um, so boredom often compelled us to do something more productive with our time, right? But now you look at, what happens when people get bored today? They just like pull out their cell phone or watch Netflix or whatever, right? And this is uh, this is bad. So there's uh, a few things that come with all this time that um, we spend buried in our phones because we don't want to be bored. One is we know it's associated with increases in uh, anxiety and depression and decreases in um, productivity, and that's because your brain gets pretty burned out when you're focused out on the outside world all the time. Whereas boredom often takes you inward for a while as you kind of figure out what am I going to do with my time? You think inward, your mind wanders. That's kind of more a rest state for your brain. Uh, number two, boredom is associated with increases in creativity. So there's these wild studies where they'll take one group and they'll be like, yeah, do, do whatever the hell you guys want. You know, and inevitably people just pull out their phones and kind of wait in the room and mess around. And then they'll take another group and they will bore the hell out of them. And then they will give both groups a creativity test. And the board group consistently comes up with more answers that are deemed more creative 
than the non than the non-board group. Okay. Uh, and then finally, like I think about it like this. One of my favorite quotes is from William James, a uh, psychologist in the early 1900s. He says that your life is essentially a collection of that which you are aware of. So nowadays, okay, 12 hours of media a day. Like, are we really going to look back on our lives and be like, oh man, thank God that I watched season nine of Gossip Girl. Man, that was like one of the greater moments of my life. I'm so happy I did that, right? Like, no. Some, some, some people, I mean, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> I want to meet that person. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I told you that to basically tell you this is that there's a lot of focus today on, you know, to improve your mental health, to improve your productivity, to improve all this, whatever, uh, use your cell phone less. Like we got to use our cell phone less. And it's like, everybody knows that. Right. But the problem is, is that when people reduce their phone screen time, it's like, what do they do? They go, yeah. what oh, are shit, they this is boring. This is boring. Well, what do I do? I'm going to watch Netflix. Your brain does not know the difference. Right. So I advocate for trying to figure out how can I add more boredom into my life? And the way that I, um, what I usually recommend to people is um, <clears throat> go for a walk outside for like 20 minutes every day and just leave your phone at home. And because there's also ancillary benefits to being outside, which we can get into if you want, but it's kind of like gives you this period to totally just like decompress and you're going to notice more, you're going to think differently. And it just is it's just like a good way to chill out and come up with great ideas. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, um, I recently read a book called wired to create, if I'm remembering the the title correctly. Okay. And, uh, it was good. It was, uh, just kind of a, an evidence-based review of, of creativity basically. And then, and then also sharing anecdotes, uh, the, and, and as you know, a common denominator among many creative people and let's say creative geniuses, big names that people would recognize is daily walks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And they're probably not, you know, scrolling Twitter the whole time. You know, they're just like for for fortunately for them, there was maybe fortunately for us for humanity, there was no Twitter then. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because in a Um, lot of cases, you know, these are I mean, these are people going back hundreds of years. mm -hmm. And even um, you know, one thing too that I talk about in the book is that uh, we're rarely in solitude anymore. So you know, when I was up there, um, I had times where I would be the only person within. I mean. 20, 30, 40 square miles, right? Like totally alone with no, no form of contact, which is like, whoa, that's the most alone I've ever been in my life. Cause even today when we're like, Hey, I need some alone time. It's like you go into your room, but then people still have contact with people through text messages, through podcasts, through all this, through media, whatever. Like we're rarely just with ourselves. Right. Um, and it's uncomfortable at first. It's like, this is, I think one of the reasons why lots of people like try to meditate and they stop. Cause they're like, well, I found that the person inside my head is freaking insane. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> yeah. But if you, if you look at a lot of the research and we know that like, okay, being lonely isn't good for people, but, but being lonely means that I want to be with people. I want to have connection. I just can't figure out how to make it right. Whereas solitude is going I'm electing to be alone. I'm electing to spend this time to learn something about myself. And that's also something that's been used throughout history by 
creative people, leaders like Abraham Lincoln, Steve Jobs, um, all these people throughout history would take periods where they were just completely removed from society and use it to be, to think, to come up with ideas, to be more productive, to get to know something about themselves, right? Do you feel like you learned something about yourself? How long were you up there, by the way? Uh, more than a month. Okay. And do you feel like you learned something about yourself in that time? Oh, totally. I mean, yeah, I mean, across the board, a lot of different things. Um, but in terms of the solitude thing, it's like, yeah, once you're up there, all of a sudden you go, so much of how we behave in daily life is a reaction to someone else or society, right? We do things because uh, they're on like the list of what you do in life to be a successful person or whatever, right? But when you remove society- Or at least from- maybe somebody who fits in. Yes. I think for so many people, that's probably number one on the list. I yeah. just want to fit. fit I in. just want to fit in. Be like, I don't want to rock the boat. Yeah. Yes. I just want to be liked. I don't want anybody to look at me weird or think about me weird. Yes, exactly. Um, but once you remove society from the equation, it's like, oh man, like, how would I live life if there weren't society around? Like, what do I really want to do with my time? Hmm. Right. And so once you start asking those questions, it starts to get kind of interesting. Um, and for me, at least, I mean, like I can theoretically kind of understand that, but once you are completely alone in the middle of freaking nowhere, I mean, that is like getting smacked in the face with that concept. Like it's a two by four, you know? And, uh, so, so for you in terms of, uh, maybe, maybe what did, what did you experience? Uh, was it a paradigm shift or was it just new ways of looking at things? Yeah, I think so. I think, well, part of the thing about being up there that long is like you start to strip away a lot of layers and like, what do you end up missing? Right. Cause you're up there, you're totally removed. And I found for me, like I miss two things. I miss my wife and I miss my dog. And I'll say like a 0.5 thing I missed is because we only packed in like maybe 2000 calories a day, but we're burning like 4,000, just like hiking around and that would be like food, um, but that doesn't count. Right. Can't, yeah. 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 Um, Can't get away from that. You, you were, you were, uh, starving, slowly starving to death, uh, physically yeah, speaking. Exactly. Um, so I think that sometimes those periods of r- removal can help you like kind of strip away what's really important to you. And again, it's like you, we can all kind of like grasp that abstractly for me going up there. You have to experience it. Like you said, yeah, Yeah. you got to experience it, you know, um, because then it changes your behavior. When you experience something, I think on that really deep level, it changes your behavior when you return to, for me, at least when I returned home. Yeah. And so then. What are your thoughts in, in terms of how much comfort is appropriate to live with? How much comfort you, you talked about what's too much and, and there is uh, excess comfort in people's lives. But what are your thoughts in terms of balancing hardship and, uh, and comfort? Yeah, well, I think what happens is that people, because we have come up and with relative, I mean, I can assume probably if you're listening to this podcast, your, your life is like going all right on some level, you know, if you have to worry about, um, how much muscle you have, that suggests to me that like you, your problems <laughs> or maybe your that priorities big are <laughs> yeah, one yeah. or the other. <laughs> um, so <laughs> I think about it this way. I was on this dude's podcast, um, maybe three months ago. And this guy is like, 
unbelievably uh, wealthy. He had this really <laughs> like company he sold for a lot of money. And I told him, you know, we were talking about, he's like, dude, you were up in the Arctic for like more than a month. He's like, I could never in a million years do that. Like never. And I was like, dude, you're just, you just think you can't do that because you had the luxury of being born in like 1978 or whenever you were born. Right. Were and now people, you have heated floors in your bathroom. You know? Yes, exactly. And someone who takes out your trash and all this shit. Right. So like, I think that people, um, and I don't know if this answers your question, but I think that people chronically, uh, one undersell their potential what they're capable of like we hear of stuff like that and it's just like i could never do that and it's like dude like think of how hard life was for thousands and thousands and th millions of years right so the balance has tipped so far and what happens is there's this concept i talk about in the book called prevalence induced concept change and it basically states that as humans and humans be as humans become more comfortable over time we don't have an ability to look back 20 years, 200 years, 2000 years and be like, man, I have it so good in the grand scheme of time and space. We adapt to the next most comfortable thing. And then the last thing that came before it is all of a sudden unacceptable. Like you can't do that. Right. Yep. So I think, you know, that, that's kind of a roundabout that applies, way of that saying. That's just, that's just part of the human condition. It seems, yeah. I mean, it applies to, uh, a lot of people's complaints about yes. a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. We're always searching for problems. Right. And so, I mean, I, to, to kind of answer your question is like, I think it's probably personal, but I think that most people are going to probably err on the side of like being too comfortable at the end of the day. It's like, you know, I mean, humans used to walk like 20,000 steps a day, every single day. Right. And now it's like, Whoa, I had this crazy, crazy day with, <laughs> with like 15, uh, nutritional deficiencies. And yes, <laughs> exactly. And, All that and, kind and, of stuff. And, and then, and then worrying about getting attacked by one of 42 different animals that yeah. is going to kill you. You're not going to get away. And right. With like a piece of, you know, and their shoes are like a piece of reed on their foot or whatever, if they're even wearing something like that. So like, it's a long way of saying that like humans are capable of doing a lot of things and a lot of, and tolerating a lot. And yeah. so I think that sometimes we just tend to err on the side of like, not, um, of underselling ourselves. Frankly, we just are like, Oh, I can't do that. No, that's too hard. That's too, whatever. That's too X, Y, Z. Um, when the reality is, is that we, we probably could do things if we just put ourselves in a position to be willing to tolerate things. And I'm not advocating like destroy your body or go to extremes, that kind of stuff. But I do think that, you know, hopefully that answers your question. It's kind of one of those that's like a case by case. So did you know that right now I am in the middle of a big book launch bonanza for my new fitness book for men and women of all ages and abilities, Muscle for Life, which is releasing on January 11th and is currently available for pre-order over at muscleforlifebook.com, muscleforlifebook.com. And why should you pre-order? 
Well, to invoke an electrochemical response in your brain and stimulate something approximating joy, I am celebrating the release of this new book by giving away over $12,000 of glorious fitness goodies, including a Bowflex C6 bike, that's a thousand bucks, a Hypervolt Go, that's 200 bucks, an Instant Pot Duo Crisp Air Fryer, another 200 bucks, a Vitamix E310 blender, 350 bucks, a 30 minute zoom call with yours unruly. And that is priceless, of course, and much, much more. Now, there are several ways to enter to win too. You can buy books, you can spread the word, you can follow me on social media and more. So again, to get all of the giveaway sauce, go over to muscleforlifebook.com, musclefrlifebook.com. Do you think it, uh, it, it's also connected with, I think this, this came from Ray Dalio in his book, Principles. He talked about an, a spectrum, right, of, of, of savoring life on, on one end and striving on the other end. And mm -hmm. uh, the point that he was making is you, you can't have both. You can have one or the other, and he's not going to tell you he chose what he chose. And he's, he was a striver for a long time, and then now he's more of a saver or he's becoming more of that in, in his later in the later part of his life, he has unlimited money and whatever, right? He did yeah. what he wanted to do. Um, but that's something that has just stuck with, with me because I think there, there's truth in that, that if, if you want to achieve significant things, you are going to have to deal with a lot of discomfort. There's just no way around it. Yeah. Uh, but that may not be for everybody. Some people, they may, so long as they're making the conscious choice of, eh, I'm going to take it easy. I'm going to take it slow. I'm going to save her life. I'm going to put more time into relationships and just having fun and messing around. That, that wouldn't be for me, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's, it's the wrong choice to make. Yeah. I mean, I think about it as like, it's a, you need one for the other. So in order to really appreciate I guess the savoring element of this, and I haven't, I haven't read his book, so I, I, I'll probably be getting this wrong, but in order to appreciate the, the, the savoring element, you probably have to like strive one point, right? Like if he had just kind I of I know like, people though, that it seems like there, there's not much striving. There's never been much striving. They just take it easy and you know, they, I'm sure they have their ups and downs. We all yeah. do, but I've just never seen, they've never really displayed that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That. And I would, I would argue that probably the highs for them are going to be lower sure. than they would be for someone who, who strived for something and then got the win and then can save it. So I'll tell, sure. I'll, I'll tell you a story to like sort of illustrate <clears throat> this point um, for me. And it kind of goes back into what we were just talking about, about, you know, finding problems and perspective. So when I fly up to the Arctic, I got to take uh, five different flights just to get to this plane. That's like the size of a pack of gum to take it out. And it like lands on the tundra. Right. But the first flight I had to take was from Las Vegas up to Seattle. It's a 747. <clears throat> now I hate flying. Okay. I hate the turbulence. I hate the fact that the bathroom is cramped. I hate the fact that the coffee sucks. I hate the crying baby next to me. I hate the movies on the like the screen in front of you. They're always terrible. They're like B rate movies, right? Everything about flying is awful. Okay. <laughs> then I go and spend a month in the Arctic. <laughs> if I want to get water, if I want anything to drink. I have to hike down to a stream and get it. And I got to carry it back up to camp. I'm carrying an 80 pound pack on my back the entire time. If I want to go to the bathroom, I got to hike out across the tundra and I got to squat. 
And I have to bring, I have to bring a rifle too, because there's grizzly bears everywhere, right? I'm freezing cold the entire time. I'm wildly underfed. So when I take that 747 back to Las Vegas, what do you think my experience of that flight was like? It was Different. freaking amazing. <laughs> I hadn't sat in a chair in more than a month, right? So like all of a sudden this seat that's all cramped is like, oh my God, this thing is great, right? When I go to the it's, bathroom, it's I not can just, ice. Exactly. It's not ice. They have hot coffee. That's great. I hadn't had coffee in more than a month, right? I ate like 20 bags of pretzels. When I watched that movie on the seat back, it's like, you know, Fast and the Furious, like 29 or whatever one we're on. It's like, oh my God, this movie's unbelievable. How has it not won like 29 Oscars? This is great. And then it's like when I go to the bathroom, I hit that little button and hot water which I hadn't had on my hands for more than a month comes out of a freaking plane at 30,000 feet. So that's a long way of saying like, there are so much, so many amazing things about modern life that like, we just don't appreciate like modern life is freaking amazing in every way. But if you don't ever get out of that, if you don't ever like deprive yourself of certain things and like have to put yourself in positions that are going to be tough, um, I don't think you can pre appreciate it as much, right? We could probably try, right? Intellectually, at least to maintain some sort of perspective. You can try, but it's not going to hit you as hard. I mean, it's like, yeah. if you would have told me, hey, man, no, the plane flight is great on that plane up there. I would have been like, yeah, go yourself. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like, yeah, yeah. I, I get it. But this sucks right now. Like that's not going to change my feelings on it. Right. Like, yeah, I can intellectually process that, but until you actually experience things kind of back to what you said before, it's like, it's, it doesn't hit as hard. Right. And I'm not suggesting at all that everyone go up to the Arctic for more than a month. But what I am suggesting is that there are ways to sort of get yourself out of that loop that can sometimes lead to complacency where you're maybe not as grateful. Cause I think like the number one thing for me, how I changed is like, of course I came back and I was like fitter than I'd ever been. Um, all these things. Right. But the biggest shift for me was perspective and appreciation for my daily life and like what I have. And that like colors every single interaction I have it's just like really deep gratitude. Right. And so if I have that, then like every moment of my day is going to be better. And how much of that has stuck with you? How long has it been now since you've returned? Uh, so I was up there, that was like two years ago now. And definitely it's hung around. I mean, it's not as intense as when I first got back. I mean, when, it, when I first got back, it was just like, I was just like walking around like a smiling idiot because it wasn't cold outside, you know? Um, but it's definitely hung around. Like, cause I'll find myself, like, I think we, we adapt to the circumstances that we put ourselves in most often. Right. So I'll definitely catch myself where I'm like complaining about something. <laughs> I'm like, why am I complaining about this? Right. Um, and when I can do that, that's a win. I, I can't always do it. Um, but that's why I still try to do, you know, something that, that mimics that not to the, that extreme, but every year, cause it's kind of like a nice reset. It's like, we're kind of living, I argue in the book, like on one end of the pendulum right now. And it's like, if you don't ever swing that pendulum over to that other end from time to time, you know, we miss a little bit. I think that's a part of, I haven't uh, done any of them myself, but probably part of the appeal of uh, Spartan races and Tough Mudder. And I think there are others where you just go get dirty and tired and you just do hard stuff. Um, I know also... 
uh, Mark Devine, the, the ex-Navy SEAL guy, nice guy. He's come on the show a couple of times. He <laughs> does what I think he calls it Kokoro or something. It's kind of an yeah. intense two or three day mimics uh, a little bit of hell week, gives gives you a little bit mm-hmm. of a, a taste of what that's like. And, you know, he gets people coming to it. And I know people will uh, who, who do those types of things will often say similar things to, to what you're saying right now. It just it helps them uh, maintain perspective. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. And 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 one other question I have for you: what what is Masogi? I don't know. Am I pronouncing that right? <laughs> yeah, Masogi, you are. Masogi, Masogi, Masogi. One of those. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um... It's part of this uh, journey. I meet this dude whose name is Marcus Elliott. Do you, have you heard of him? Nope. Okay. <clears throat> so there's two things you need to know about him. Uh, the first is that he's a little bit of a seeker. So he counted cards to get himself through college. He was going to Burning Man when it was just like this little thing in the desert, right? Old school Burning Man. And um, he lived out of a VW van for a while. But the second thing you know about need to know about him is that he's brilliant. So he went to, he got his MD from Harvard and he decided he didn't want to be a doctor. He wanted to revolutionize sports science and he actually did it. So he's one of the very first people that really started to quantify human performance. He does all this stuff with like movement tracking and AI and big data and whatever. So he has contracts with the NBA. Every NBA uh, draft pick goes through his system. He's got a facility in Santa Barbara and one in Atlanta Uh, He's got contracts with the NFL, all these other leagues, right? But he also realizes that what improves uh, human performance and potential can't always be measured, right? There are like certain untangibles that you just, I don't know, you can't measure it, right? It's like, why is it that certain players, you're just like, end of the game. Some have it. Yeah. And some don't. Yeah. Why is Tom Brady sucks at being an, at, at everything athletic, right? Like, I could beat him in a foot race, but he's the greatest ever because he's got something on board, right? He's figured out ways to work with what he's got. Um, so what is that? So to sort of get to that, he does this thing called Masogi. And the idea is that once a year, it's going to do something really, really hard in nature. Okay. So there's two rules to Masogi. The first rule is it's got to be really hard, which he defines as saying you should have a 50-50 shot of finishing it. Uh, and the second rule is that you can't die. And that's kind of like gonna, a tongue in cheek. <laughs> that was going to be my question. <laughs> what about yeah. dying? Okay. Yeah. Tongue in cheek way to say, basically, be safe. Don't be an idiot. Right. <laughs> so he's done things with, uh, he'll get like a group of, you know, four people or whatever. He's done some alone, but he'll get a group of like four people. And a couple of them are probably like pro athletes. And then the other two could be like an accountant or whatever, who just, you know, um, and they'll go do a task in nature. So one year, for example, they got this 85 pound boulder and they, they walked it, I think five miles underneath the Santa Barbara channel. So like 10 feet. So one guy would dive down, pick up the boulder, walk 10 yards, come up for air. The next guy would go over and over and over until this rock is a point B. They've also done simpler stuff where it's like, Hey, we can see that mountain in the distance. Let's try and get to the top in a day. All right. And <clears throat> The idea is that he is trying to mimic challenges that humans used to face in the past, right? So as you think about how humans evolved and when we were, you know, for thousands of years, we had to do challenging things in nature all the time, like all the time. And this was without safety nets. And this was stuff that the world would just show us. So this could be from 
a hunt, uh, having to move from summering to wintering grounds, could be from like a tiger lurking in the bushes, right? And each time we would accomplish one of these, we would learn something about our potential. We would be shown what we were capable of doing, right? But in modern life, you're often not challenged that way anymore, right? Like you can never be challenged to your point about the savers is like, you can kind of go through life and have a halfway decent life, right? You got a job, you got food on the table, you'll have a family to come home to and never be challenged. But by not being challenged, you sort of miss something about your potential. So if you think about like human potential is a big circle around us, by never going out on the edges, it's like you just kind of live in this little circle inside of that, right? So the idea of Masogi is that like, I'm going to go explore those edges and see what's out there. Because again, it's got to be really hard, 50-50. Like even today when people take on marathons, it's not, am I going to finish? It's am I going to finish in my goal time of three hours, 45 minutes or whatever it is. Right. So what happens is that two things tend to happen for people when they do these. The first is that you inevitably reach a point where you think you've hit your edge. You got to quit. You can't go any further, but if you can put one foot in front of the other, you'll get to a point where you can look back and be like, Hey, I thought that was my edge back there, but I'm past it. So I have sold myself short here. And that raises the important question, well, where else in life am I selling myself short, right? Uh, And then the second thing is it helps people reframe fear. So fear, um, as we evolved, like failure used to mean you could die, right? So we are wired to really avoid failure at all costs. But failure today is often like, oh, I spelled something wrong in an email to my boss, or I messed up on a slide or whatever it might be. Yet we still fear those things. Um, you know, we just fear failure at all costs. So by engaging in an environment where you could fail, you can also kind of realize, you know what, like failure is not that big of a deal. And then you can take that back into your everyday life and it can sort of move the dial for you. It's interesting to think of that from an evolutionary perspective too, because naturally people who could just figure out how to not die were, were being selected for obviously. And, and it it makes me think of that X factor that, uh, that certainly kept some people alive and it it might've just manifested as luck, but some people, they just, they just seem to get more luck than average or they just, they just figure out ways. I mean, you see it a lot in the business sector now is I guess is where you see a lot of this, right. And you see people who are just repeat offenders. They just, they go from one industry to the next and they just figure out how to make things happen. Yeah. And, uh, and I think a lot of that is, some of that is that X factor. Yeah. It's that X factor. And also they're willing to put themselves in a position with a high where they might fail. Yeah. Right. It's like everything you do in life that has a reward is going to come with some degree of risk. You know, some things are riskier than others. Um, But I think one of the, one of the great things about this idea is that is that first rule of 50, 50, right? So like my 50% is going to be different than your 50% is going to be different than your 50%. So for example, my mother, who is 72 years old, she walks her dog on this like mountain every day. There's a trail that's like six miles. It goes to like the top of this mountain, but she'll do like the first, she'll do three miles basically. Cause she, you know, doesn't, can't go that much farther. Well, she read about this concept in my book and she was like, I'm going to try and get to the top. Right. <laughs> and along the way, she's like, it was hard. I had to stop. I had to breathe, whatever, but she made it. 
And when she got home, she was like, man, I didn't think I could do that. This indicates to me that I probably am more physically capable than I thought. And she ended up booking this trip that she had been putting off because she was like, I don't know if I can take that much walking that this thing is going to require of me. Right. So if you put yourself in a position, you can learn a lot about what you're capable of. Cause I think that people chronically undersell their potential, which back to talking about why that might be is that as we evolved, I think that you didn't want people who took on, like thought they could do everything. Right. Those are the people who were the hold my beer people and get in trouble. <laughs> right. It's like, hell yeah, I could jump over that through that chasm. Watch this. It's like, see you later. Yeah. Right? Oh, there he goes. Yeah. Uh, you want the people who are afraid of that, but if, if the world forces them to do that, if something is chasing them, they have to do it for survival. They can do it. Right. Endurance exercise is, is good for this kind of thing because a lot of endurance athletes, I mean, they'll say that, uh, one of the main reasons they are so good at whatever endurance sport that they're good at is they, they can just suffer more than the next guy or gal mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and they just don't give up. They just keep going. Right. And, oh, yeah. and a lot, and a, and a lot of just everyday normal people who really like to bike or run or swim or whatever, um, they, they'll say that one of the reasons they really like it is to get to that point where it's hard and they feel like, the, I mean, their body just wants to stop, but they keep going. And then if, if they can push past that, if they can turn that corner, then they feel, um, I mean, it, I've experienced it only a couple of times. I'm not really into, I do cardio every day, but it's, you know, 30 minutes of moderate biking. I'm not, I'm not pushing myself that hard. I, mm -hmm. I, I treat it more as exercise than training. Uh, but, but I know again, a lot of people that is a big allure is to reach that state. I mean, I'm, I'm not thinking of the term. There's a term that they use for it, but where then they feel like they could run forever. Their body feels light. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and often emotionally now they have like a, almost an ecstasy kind of feeling. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I've done some like, not like crazy, crazy, crazy long stuff, but enough that yeah, that's totally where it's at. Like once you get to a certain point, you realize that it's what determines how far you're going to go is what's going on upstairs. That's assuming yeah. you don't like blow out a knee or something. Right. Sure. Um, and also I think that there are some people who are wired to take it too far. Right. These are the same type of people who would like, who are probably dealing with some sort of honestly, like a psychological issue. And, you know, it's a lot more socially acceptable to go run a hundred miles than it is to like, drink your face off or cut yourself or something like that. And so like there can be some, it can raise some questions, you know, but I mean, I think people can, I mean, when you think about what the human body has evolved to do well, one of the things is to run long distances relatively slowly compared to other animals in the heat. So we would, as we evolved, we would use this to our advantage on hot days to hunt animals, right? Cause other animals are way faster than us, but they can only sprint. So we'd keep bumping these animals slowly, but surely chase them down, bump them, bump them, bump them. And eventually they would just get so tired from sprinting. They topple over and then we'd spear them. Right. And we'd have dinner. And, um, but those hunts on average, they lasted 13, 13 miles, but of course they could go beyond and be like 20 miles. Right. So nowadays picking up dinner is going through the drive through at wherever Burger King. And back then no, 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 you, just dinner was, you just order, you yeah. just order it on your phone. Man. Yeah. Having some about? dude bring it you to get you. It delivered into your face. You don't even get off of the couch. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
Well, hey, man, this was a great discussion. Uh, again, I really appreciate you taking the time. And the book is The Comfort Crisis. And then where can people find you? Uh, and if there if there is another project you're working on that you want them to know about or anything else, let's let them know. Yeah. Um, so I'm at uh, eastermichael.com is my website. There's like some other resources there. You can find stuff about the book. The book's available for sale everywhere. It's called The Comfort Crisis. Um, I am working on another book that I'm keeping people in the loop about on my Instagram feed, and that's Michael underscore Easter. Cool. And uh, what's that book about? It is called... So the working title is The Scarcity Brain, and it's basically about how as humans evolved, we lived in these environments of scarcity of all different kinds of things, like from food to information to stuff to the number of people we could influence uh, and on and on. And now we live in environments of abundance of all those things and how that is in turn affecting us. Yeah, it's uh, in, in a problem and in a logical follow-up, I think, to I'm assuming <laughs> yeah. it came out of your experience and with, with the first book. Yeah, yeah, I think so. So I've been doing some traveling for that. I was down in the uh, deep into the Amazon and Bolivia over the summer and I'm headed to Thailand in a little bit. So yeah, should be should be interesting. It's always fun to report these things. I, I think sometimes my editor thinks that it's just a excuse for me ex- to go yeah. <laughs> do rad, rad stuff. You, and maybe you get, write, you get to, you get to write it all off though. Cause yes, as a writer, Hey, exactly. that's research. <laughs> exactly. Cool, man. Well, thanks again for taking the time. I appreciate it. Yeah, of course. That was a blast. I appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. Well, I hope you liked this episode. I hope you found it helpful. And if you did, subscribe to the show because it makes sure that you don't miss new episodes. And it also helps me because it increases the rankings of the show a little bit, which of course then makes it a little bit more easily found by other people who may like it just as much as you. And if you didn't like something about this episode or about the show in general, or if you have uh, ideas or suggestions or just feedback to share, shoot me an email, mike at muscleforlife.com, musclefor.life.com, and let me know what I could do better or just uh, what your thoughts are about maybe what you'd like to see me do in the future. I read everything myself. I'm always looking for new ideas and constructive feedback. So thanks again for listening to this episode, and I hope to hear from you soon.